This morning, we will be in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to chapter 6. Now, Hebrews is a very interesting book. I want to give you a little bit of background on it. Studying the book of Hebrews is a lot like trying to study or define the undefined. It's nobody's certain who the author is. Uh, the exact audience, the specific church it was written to, is not known. The setting in life, the, the nature of the cause for its writing, the struggles the intended, intended audience were experiencing, they're not defined here in the book. Even its literary style does not have consensus among biblical scholars. So what is Hebrews? Hebrews is a sermon rooted in actual life. It's addressed to a local church that found itself rattled by circumstances outside of its control. It's a book that brings clear awareness of both the privilege and the responsibilities of discipleship. It's actually a pastoral response to a sagging faith in a local body of believers who have become lukewarm and ineffective. It warns of the judgment of God, which awaits those who waver in their commitment to Christ. But most importantly, it's a clear and resounding declaration of the holy priesthood of Jesus Christ. It trumpets his supreme faithfulness to his Father, and the entirety of the book resounds with the perfection of Christ. The author, the pastor, opens his sermon stating that the fundamentals of faith are critical and foundational. I'll read now the chapter, it's a rather short chapter, and then we'll talk about those fundamentals. So Hebrews 6 begins, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying aside the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew then again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed and whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and you do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. 
Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things which, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Because this is the word of our Heavenly Father, let's take a moment and pray before we consider it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't wander this world unsure of who you are. But through your word, you have accurately and very completely revealed your nature to us. God, thank you for the word and what it imputes into our souls. Thank you for the, not just the knowledge, but the spiritual wisdom it brings. Father, we are failed creatures, and I pray that this morning, my limited interpretation would be accurate and fruitful. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so chapter 6 Hebrews starts talking about the, with the fundamentals of the faith. And he opens his sermon stating that these fundamentals of faith are both critical and foundational. So what does critical and foundational mean? I could build a beautiful home. I can use the nicest finishes, the best marble countertops, the highest quality wood and everything. But if I don't build a good, solid foundation, that home is not going to withstand the forces of nature, and quickly, it will crumble. It's the same for our faith. <clears throat> Unless we understand and accept the foundational aspects of Christianity, all the other claims, our efforts, the endowments, they're all pointless. So what are the fundamentals of Christianity? They're actually plainly laid out here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Repentance from dead works, Faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. <clears throat> now, ironically, for the generation that first received this letter, further review of the fundamentals was not needed. In fact, the author states that quickly on. Look, these are the fundamentals, but we need to move on from these. It's ironic that in our day and age, for us today, to a large degree, the opposite is true. We are in need of the fundamentals. Ours is an age that has indeed evolved to a very fanciful and indefinite kind of so-called perfection, categorically forsaking and denying the very principles outlined here as fundamental. It's not our body, but there are whole church bodies that deny the exclusivity of Christ as the sole means for salvation. Others reject a God, the notion of a God who brings judgment. Fundamental truth of the most basic nature is openly design, uh, denied or presumptuously ignored by an age that seems to feel has outgrown such things as these. And therefore, we'd we be, be thankful indeed that the inspired outline of things which is presented here in this book constituting the fundamental Christian doctrine so plainly spelled out for us. Now, these elementary principles are given in three pairs. First, repentance and faith together. Then, baptisms and laying on of hands together. And then, finally, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment 
are paired together. I'm going to take a few minutes and look individually at these fundamentals. The first fundamental, repentance from dead works. Now, repentance is absolutely basic to salvation. It's a constant duty of all who would enter into, a, in, enter into an eternal life. It's an invariable condition of forgiveness of sin whatsoever. Forgiveness must follow repentance, not the other way around. Forgiveness is offered to all, but repentance is that sign of acceptance. It's the act of receiving. Without repentance, the forgiveness is still out there. It's laying right there on the table. It's the act of repentance that grasps that forgiveness and picks it up. Without it being taken up, which is ironically done by putting down our own pride and sinful nature, the forgiveness isn't active. Instrumental in reaching the point of repentance is understanding the futility of works. All works are dead in the sense intended here, except the ones motivated by faith and love in God. The works of human righteousness, the works of the flesh, mortal achievement. Even the works, and he talks about this in the, throughout the, all of Hebrews, even the works in the law of Moses must be included in what is declared as dead works here. At its heart, Dead works is an attempt by man to garner his own salvation. A refusal to recognize his own ability to attain salvation of his own accord. Fundamentally, repentance from dead works is synonymous with dying to self. Relying not on oneself for Christ, relying on Christ alone for salvation. This is why it is both the first and the most imperative step in the Christian faith. We then move on to the second fundamental, a faith towards God. Faith as a fundamental is affirmed not only here in Hebrews, but really throughout the whole of the New Testament, specifically in the book of Mark. Contrary to what many denominations teach, faith is not the pinnacle of Christian achievement. Instead, it's actually a rudimentary, fundamental, basic thing. Doctrinal knowledge accumulation of spiritual gifts, these things don't lead to faith. They are the result of faith. Faith is trust. Faith is saying to God, look, I don't fully understand you, God. I know your word tells me here that I can trust you with this case I'm working through in my own life, this trouble it has. Your word says I can trust you. I'm not seeing it, but I'm going to believe it. I'm going to rely on you even though I can't see the action being taken. It's submitting to his will, willingly, and in full trust of his love for you. Faith is confidence in what can't be seen or held. And it's a fundamental, but it'd be, ba it'd be very difficult to understate the importance of faith without which no man can please God. The third fundamental, the teaching of baptisms. Baptism is the sacramental sign of the new covenant. It's a sign by which God seals his pledge to the elect that they are included in the covenant of grace. Baptism signifies several things. In the first instance, it's a sign of the cleansing and remission of our sins. It signifies being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, 
being buried together, raised together with Christ, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being adopted into the family of God, and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The fourth fundamental, laying on of hands. And this is one we really don't have a strong understanding of. This, at first glance, this would seem to be possibly misplaced in this list. I'm not sure how this fits. But it's also a practice which has been widely misunderstood. Many of us understand the laying on of hands as an aspect instrumental with prayer. We lay hands on people as we pray over them. And although the laying of hands may certainly be comforting and edifying to many during prayer, um, its practice in the scriptures is only recorded in two instances I could find. The ordination of elders and the conferring of apostolic gifts. Now, does this mean that the, the use of laying of hands during prayer is wrong? Certainly not. Certainly not at all. But Scripture lists the practice only with regard to ordination and giftings. Ordination of elders and conferring of apostolic gifts, both essential in the Christian faith to the continued growth of the church, the establishment of congregations and their teachers. This, this fundamental speaks to the physical growth of Christ's church, both numerically and geographically. And, and that's a goal we share. We prayed for that together this morning. To see the body of Christ expand and reach all corners of the globe. All corners of Culpeper is what we're called to, to do. The fifth fundamental, the resurrection of the dead. This is another fundamental that our current culture shuns. Common phrase, when we die, there's simply nothing. We must present the reality of the resurrection to a secular world, to an unbelieving society. The whole teaching of Christ was founded on the premise, the promise of a resurrection of the good and the bad alike, indeed of all people. In the book of John, he said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Without the resurrection of dead, Christ has no victory over sin and death. And that makes our faith useless. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was considered one of the most influential reasons for the spread of Christianity in the first and second centuries. So why today is it a message that we veer from, that we shy from, from presenting? Because it's offensive to somebody? How much more offensive to not being presented it, denying Christ, and standing before that holy king at the judgment seat? What's offensive is our withholding that message from somebody. They may not want to hear it today, but think of the joy if you get past that initial fear of offending somebody. Share the gospel message with, with them. And when we are all resurrected, the good and the bad, before his throne, you see that person enter into the kingdom rather than receive the condemnation of your father. What joy you will have that you didn't succumb to that fear at that earthly moment then. The sixth fundamental, eternal judgment. 
the whole concept of eternal judgment has collapsed from theological firmament and from its rightful emphasis by the gospel preachers. Again, Christ plainly stated that all nations would appear before him in judgment, that he would sit on the throne of God and separate the wicked from the righteous, just like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He taught that all nations would appear simultaneously with that current generation in judgment and that the citizens of Nineveh and the queen of the south, separated by centuries of time, would appear in judgment with the contemporaries of Jesus and with us. Hebrews chapter 9 says, And it is, as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. This fundamental of the Christian faith, the fundamental of eternal judgment, above all others, should strike fear in the heart of the unbeliever and joy in the heart of the Christian. Joy and relief. Now these six fundamentals, they're the building blocks of our faith. They're necessary and they are the principal aspects of a faith in Christ. They're foundational, but they are not comprehensive. What that means is, yes, they give a witness to the faith, but they are not are indicative of a mature faith. Now, we're called to grow in our knowledge of God. His calling for us, the elect, and our obedience to that call. There's a peril in not progressing in our faith we are called to a faith that is not a, a location or a destination, even though we have an eventual destination in mind. We are called to a faith that is a continued daily submission to our Lord and Savior. As long as you are here on this earth, as long as you breathe breath, you will not reach that goal. It is a continued daily submission to Him. As you do submit, and the Holy Spirit works in your life, and those aspects of your sinful nature, through his work, begin to be rooted out of your body, you're going to quickly find there's another one right behind it that needs to be addressed. A new believer quickly sees those superficial things in his life that need to be changed. I need to get rid of these DVDs. I need to stop listening to this. I need to stop speaking like that. The hard work comes when the superficial things are gone and you strive to mature in your faith he starts working at things that are deeply personal about you. Hatreds you have buried inside. Pride that you don't want to let go of. That's the hard work in the Christian faith that we're called to. And there is no final destination for that until we surround his throne. Verses 1 and 2 goes, says, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Now, Leaving them does not mean hold a contempt for them or cast them aside. Instead, it means to let it stand, to leave remaining while moving forward in faith. Our faith begins with an event. The work of the Holy Spirit, we come to that moment and we realize our sin, we realize our deep need for a Savior, and we submit ourselves to Him openly, publicly, declaring Him our King. That is a moment in time. 
But the process continues. It goes on. That sanctification does not end until we are called home. We need to be fed and led by the Holy Spirit. That sanctification, that growing in faith and obedience, it's not an accomplishment we make. Rather, it's the work of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, let us go on to perfection, uh, some versions say let us go on to maturity. It describes a goal, not a process. So what is meant by perfection? We need to understand that perfection is the result of calling, not an issue of possession. It's it's the action by God the judge rather than a a gradual self-transformation of character. Faith in Christ is not another self-help manual. We must certainly labor in our faith and strive for continued spiritual growth. But just as redemption is the result of the declarative work of God, so is our perfection. The writer of the Hebrews did not say that we can reach perfection on this side of eternity, but we can and we should reach a place of spiritual maturity in Christ. So the call is plain. Let us go on to perfection. Can any of us be perfect? No. Can any of us be perfected? Yes. And by whom? God. So if repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments are the six fundamentals, and the pastor here is saying that we must go on from these fundamentals towards perfection, what does that mean for the Christian that never progresses? What if someone in their, never grows beyond those fundamentals in their faith? Or worse, what if someone falls short or falls away from those fundamentals? He begins to address this in verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now, this is where it's so helpful to do a deep study, especially in the book of Hebrews. And not look at a verse in isolation. Because by itself, that can be rather disconcerting. But here, the term once, the way it's used here, it carries a qualitative nuance rather than a numerical nuance. It refers to the sufficiency and permanence of what Christ has established. This is a verse that many people disagree with as to what it specifically states. Some claim this verse proves you can lose your faith. That kind of misunderstanding is a danger when we take a single verse of Scripture and we consider it in isolation from the rest of that book or the entirety of Scripture. So let me allow, allow me, please, to share my understanding of that verse. First, we should realize that not everybody who professes faith has obtained it. Many people claim a faith in Christ yet do not hold it. And there could be several reasons for this. Maybe they felt a familial pressure. Mom, dad, and my brothers and sisters said they were saved, so I'm going to say I'm saved. Maybe they felt a cultural pressure to claim a faith in Christ. This was a very real danger here in America 50 years ago. We call ourselves a Christian nation. It was expected you acted in society in a Christian manner. That certainly isn't the case today. And although 
we grieve that fact that our society doesn't hold to that Christian standard, honestly, there's a tiny benefit associated even with that grief. And the benefit is we're getting more and more where if you claim to be a Christian, you better be willing to walk that walk as well as talk that talk. We're approaching a time in our society when the fair-weather Christian or the cultural Christian is going to be called out. Some people may claim a faith in Christ for nefarious reasons. We've all heard the phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That, is centered, that saying comes specifically from an evil person entering a church with the intent to take advantage of those believers. We being the sheep and the wolf being the evil person. Some see Christians as easy targets and they'll join a congregation for the explicit purpose of taking advantage of them. There's other reasons too. There could be a misunderstanding of, of what faith really is. For a lot of people, and this was myself for years, I had a head knowledge of Christ without the heart knowledge of my abject need for him. list could go on. This realization that numerous persons in a church may not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ should cause us to be much more purposeful in our relationships as believers in a congregation. And this can be difficult today. Our, uh, our social media culture has made it harder and more difficult to have true relationship. And even understand what relationships are and how we develop the skills for developing and maintaining them. You know, rather than clicking likes and posting pics, true relationship takes time. It takes investment in that person. It takes talking to them face to face. True relationship necessitates more than just knowing the activities somebody is participating in. It requires knowing their thoughts. True relationship involves investing in that person and dealing honestly with one another. Do you know how your friends feel about abortion? Do you know when they've taken a stand for Christ? Do you know when they've run away from taking a stand for Christ? Are you willing to be alongside them when they need encouragement or even confront them when they are in sin? Even though our society doesn't model this, gratefully we have a model for relationship in the scriptures, we are called to be in relationship with God our Father. The difference is he's perfect, so he doesn't need our comfort or our correction. It's we who need both. But relationship with God can't happen. It certainly can't happen at a deeper level unless you understand his character, and we understand his character by investing ourselves in his word and studying his scriptures. That is the, the written declaration of who God is. It happens through prayer, time meditating on him, conversing with him, reading the word to learn his character and who he is. To say, I am a follower of Christ, takes a much greater commitment than to be a follower on Twitter. Just as Christ's work was final, and can't be undone, so is true belief. Falling away here must refer to those who professed a belief, participated in worship, attended church, 
but never truly believed. Think of Judas Iscariot. Judas walked with Jesus. He heard the word spoken literally. He was led by the Christ himself. He obviously never truly believed. Mark chapter 3, 28 reads, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Some people say that the unforgivable sin is murder. Some churches teach it's suicide. Some people say it's adultery. Well, King David, if you look the litany of the sins he pours out in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture, you know, Paul says he's the greatest singer, sinner among us, but surely David committed about every sin that can be committed, yet God counted him a man after his own heart because of his faith. So it can't be one of those sins that's the unforgivable. David is held up as a great hero of faith. The unforgivable sin does not include denying Christ, as Peter demonstrated. Here we just read this morning in, in John 21. Lord's timing is perfect. <clears throat> Jesus asking him, do you love me? You know I love you. Again asking him, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And it must have hurt so bad. Thinking back to the three denials he gave Christ. You hear Christ ask him a third time, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus going on to express his love for Peter. And now Peter would be the rock that the church is built on. So obviously denying Christ isn't the unpardonable sin. To understand the unforgivable sin, we must look in verse 6 where it says, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Putting him to open shame is not a private, self-doubting process. It's a public, declarative assignment of Christ of deserving of the shame he received, of deserving of the punishment, of saying that, yes, he is evil. That is the unpardonable sin. The reality is, if you're sitting here today, You've probably never committed the unpardonable sin because you couldn't bear to even hear, hear the word, the name of Jesus Christ spoken. It's amazing in a society that rebels against Christ, that openly rejects Christ, that more than minimizes him, ridicules him, uses his name as a cuss word. Still, that same society will refrain from calling Christ evil. The most adamant people against Christ will still say he was a great man. Our pagan, secularized culture today, it's hesitant to claim Christ was evil, or even, and worse, call him satanic, but that is what the unpardonable sin is. There is a necessary distinction here we must look at between falling and falling away, the difference between stumbling and falling away. Falling away is more than just falling into sin. It's actually departing from Jesus himself. Proverbs 24 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked man shall fall by calamity. It's the difference between a Peter and a Judas. 
If you depart from Jesus, you fall away. There is no hope. Stumbling, but rising up again, we retain that hope in Christ because he retains us firmly in his grip. The author goes on to exhort the reader to prove their faith, to prove the faith that they profess through their own perseverance. This stresses that it's not just a mere verbal profession of Christ that's saving. It's got to be a change, a change of who you are. That verbal statement should be an expression of the change. Many people put up a good show of faith without ever truly having it, and that those to profess faith without possessing it, we see them everywhere. But those who permanently fall away demonstrate that their faith was never genuine. The rain falls on the earth, and in the same way God's truth, the blessing of experiencing God's blessing and grace and observing the work of the Holy Spirit falls upon all peoples. Those that receive it and produce fruit, meaning those who believe, submit their will to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit, produce spiritual fruit of result, receiving a blessing from God. Those that receive the rain yet still produce thorns, meaning those that hear the word and reject it, they will be burned. Moving on to verse 9, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. To prevent any further discouragement from rising the hearts of his readers, the author here goes out of his way to convince him that he does not classify them in this group of apostates. He's explaining them how to identify these people, but no. Brother, sister, though you wane, though you falter, though you become a sluggard in your faith, that doesn't mean you've turned away from Christ. But it's time to pick up and courage, renew that energy, renew that commitment to your Lord and your Savior. Verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget our work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Acts of service and mercy to the Lord's servants are done to the Lord. And by distinguishing themselves and ministering to the needs of the saints, for which they did and were continuing to do, they were showing their love for God's name. The warning here is both declarative of their apparent salvation, but encourages them to do better things. As wonderful as works of benevolence are, Pure benevolence, however lavish, is no substitute for faithful adherence to the word and doctrine of Christ. In our present society where social and charitable programs of every conceivable description are being held as the first priority of a Christian faith, it's sobering to observe that the true priority lies in the word and in doctrine. To be honest, our own church has seen individuals leave because they felt that we didn't put in a focus on a social program in the community. That we spent too much time in the word and not much time in benevolence. This was not a new principle introduced by the author of Hebrews because all of the apostles held it was not fit that they should forsake the word of God and serve tables. You ever get tired of living in a world around you that despises the truth? 
Do you ever feel like it's useless to press forward? That the, the wave of the lies facing you is simply more than you can fight? The author addresses this in verse 11. He says, and we desire that each of you may show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Though we're each part of a congregation of believers and God loves us individually and expects each one of us to individually strive for holiness, you know, individuals in a nation may suffer because of national sin, but typically individuals don't receive blessing based on a national righteousness. For Jesus' church to be effective in a lost world, we need to move together, but it's up to every single individual to remain obedient, to remain steadfast, even in the face of a world that beats us down on a daily basis. Most assuredly, it's an individual responsibility. And that you do not become sluggish is an exhortation against lethargy and laziness. It's a trait that they were beginning to demonstrate in their lack of study of the word and their desire to revert back to their Jewish roots. Sluggishness also speaks to a contentment in a spiritual condition. Uh, I'm good enough or I've arrived mentality. Faith and patience are joined here as actually twin virtues because without patience, faith is likely to wither and fall. Jesus said, in your patience, ye shall possess your souls. The promises include all the wonderful things that God will do for his redeemed. What, what will he do? He will forgive our sins when we accept and obey him. He will bless us providentially in his pro- present life Make all things work together for his good and glory for those who obey him. He will provide the earnestness of the Holy Spirit with us as a pledge of eternal life. He will comfort us in our sorrows, strengthen us in our weaknesses, illuminate our way when we are in darkness, make a way of escape in the midst of temptations, attend us through the dark valley, raise us up from the rottenness of the grave itself, cover our sins in judgment, and he'll administer to us an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Surely such promises are worth the diligence and perseverance in our life today. I'm going to conclude in a moment, but verse 19 says, This hope we will have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Can an anchor on a ship do any good when it's sitting on the deck? No. An anchor does good when it's dropped down to the depths of the abyss and it takes root on the floor of the ocean. It's absolutely necessary for an anchor to disappear for it to do any good. And so it was with Christ. That's why he tried so long to explain to his disciples why he must leave. Had he remained on earth... He could not be our high priest. But now Christ has disappeared from our view into an unseen world. But his love binds us to him more shortly than the strongest chain on any anchor ever could. 
Christ is hidden again behind the veil. This time the veil is the separation between our visible world and his kingdom. That's why it's both literally and gloriously true that the Christian's hope is in heaven where the Lord has already entered and he prepares a place for you. He's clearing that path. For the Christian, his treasure is there. Your citizenship, my citizenship is in heaven. Our names are written there, our Lord is there, and our affections should be there today. Just as the full intent of this pastor bringing this message to this local church was, I have the same exhortation for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, stay strong in your faith. Long for that perfecting the Holy Spirit brings. When you stumble, remain steadfast in your faith. Don't become discouraged by the pressures of the world. Stay fixated on Lord Jesus. Know that he has claimed you. He's got you firmly in his grasp. He's protecting you. And he's waiting for you to join him one day. Let's pray. Father, it can be so hard on a daily basis. We get beaten down and weighed down by assaults from the world, the cares of the world, our failing bodies, our mistakes, our poor judgments. All these things work to erode our faith, to steal our resolve, to weaken our walk with you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement improvised, the clear instruction to remain firm, the clear statement of where our faith lays in you. Father, I thank you for the brothers and sisters gathered here, that together, shoulder to shoulder, we encourage one another. We urge each other forward, forward in our faith. And God, we do so, we ask for supernatural strength to continue in that endeavor. All in the hope that the day will arrive. And, and Lord, I'm getting more and more. I, I want that day to arrive soon that you return. We can gather around your throne and forever be in your presence. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.